Hello, once again, welcome back to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jack Snefflin. And joining us this week, we have... Sarah Hollowell, again. <laughs> and we're bringing Sarah on partially because we love you, but also because you are soon to be a published YA author, which fits pretty well for this YA book. Oh, yeah, I guess it does. Huh, I keep forgetting that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, also because you're a Harry Potter nerd, but, you know. Yeah, that's the only thing I thought of. I, I keep kind of... It's, I haven't quite started thinking of myself as, oh, yeah, I'm going to have a debut book in, like, a year. Right? Yeah. Last week we failed to explain why we brought Stefan on, so we'll leave that as a mystery for another day. But I think that's how Stefan would want it. That's true. There, there is a better reason than just, eh. Person. Hey, you come on. But yes, we're glad to have you here. Thanks for coming back. Yes, and we're giving you an opportunity to plug your book. Yeah. Uh, that isn't out for like another year. Yeah, it, yeah it, it doesn't come out until fall 2021. Uh, I don't even have like a month yet, but fall... 2021 mm. assuming that everything okay then <laughs> um, that that's very fair i have my worries <laughs> honestly it works really well that your book's whole theme is being cooked up in a house and trying to leave that'll be like very thematic for people oh damn it will nice. yeah i know right ride that wave <laughs> we should probably talk about the books we're here about the movies we're here to talk about i mean we're also here to talk about the books let's be real yeah. I wanted to try not to spend too much time on decisions that were made in the books because we are technically a film podcast, so if possible, I want us to talk about like things that are germane more to the films, but we can complain about things in the books as necessary. Yeah. I mean, like it, it's going to be relevant at points. Yeah. yeah, there are a couple of points where I might be like, there's something that the book did that I wish the movie had done, but I honestly... Oh yeah, totally. The older I get, the more I'm like, movies are a whole other beast, whatever. But like they just do, they can do different things. There's just a couple places where I'm like, I wish they had done this. I had a thing on Twitter earlier today about how they should just cut the whole Regulus Black thing and Ravenclaw's daughter's ghost thing. Just cut those entirely from the movie. Like they're fine in the book, but the movie could have streamlined a lot of things by just not having those in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a couple of things I think could have been cut just because if they were going to do them, they should have given them more time. Like, yeah. I don't want to skip too far ahead, but like one of my examples will be about like Remus and Tonks. Oh boy, howdy. Uh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah, I had a lot of feelings about that. Little things like that where it's like if you weren't going to spend the time on them, then maybe just take them out or do them something different because it ends up being really yeah. jarring and weird. It also cuts the other way, too. They, they cut out things that they thought were not going to be important and then ended up being important. And and they, they suddenly had to be like, oh, yeah, uh, shit, we need to introduce you to this person really quick. <laughs> Six definitely suffers for that. Yeah. yeah. But uh, let's get into the specifics, starting with The Order of the Phoenix. Yeah, I can't believe this was the one I had to watch. I don't like Order of the Phoenix very much. <laughs> yeah. We should also mention that... Films 5, 6, and both parts of 7 all have the same director, David Yates. Oh, yes. So all of these feel a lot more cohesive than the first half of the series did. Honestly, if it had been a Chris Columbus 1 through 4, David Yates 5 through 7, I think the series wouldn't be as kind of all over the place as it is. But the middle definitely has some like growing pains as it's switching up directors. That's actually really interesting. I, I hadn't thought about that. I know the director's changed, but I always forget who did what, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Especially now, because I haven't, I haven't seen them in a while. But I, as we were watching 5 through 7.2, I 
I was thinking about how much they those movies feel like Harry Potter to me. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's his directorial style. I don't know if about film as far as the technical aspect to know. Mm-hmm. But as they were starting, I was like, yeah, this is Harry Potter. <laughs> I, I wonder if that's just because he did the most of them. Probably. I think he did a good job synthesizing the different tones from one through four into like a single cohesive whole. Yeah, I would agree. I will say that while the other films kind of have a bit of flourish, these ones don't have as much. It feels more kind of competent director, like someone you would hire for like a phase two MCU film. Not necessarily trying to like do a lot of his own thing, but trying to just like have the story told in a direct way that fits for everybody. Kind of utilitarian. A little bit, yeah. Which isn't a terrible thing. It contrasts starkly with Alfonso Cuaron, whose third movie was like a weird indie flick. Yeah. It really is. I remember not liking Prisoner of Azkaban very much when I was a kid. Oh boy. It's not one of the ones we're talking about. I just, I don't know what my feelings are on it anymore. I'm all over the place with it. That one was the most confusing to me though, as like a teen who was seeing it. Yeah. That will play majorly into my big reveal at the end of the episode. Oh, I'm excited. Alfonso is here. (laughs) This whole time listening to you. (laughs) So let's go ahead and talk about Order of the Phoenix. And this gives us a new and important plot device. The montage. We've never had them before. We technically have a small montage in the very first film with the letters to Hogwarts. But after that, it's never used again. Until five, when it's most of the movie. You're not wrong. <laughs> Listen, I, I mean, five is also my least favorite of the books, probably. Mm. Not for the reason a lot of people don't like it. I have strong defensive feelings about emo Harry, personally. Oh, totally. That's fair. He watched someone he cared about die in front of him. I would also be a wreck for a year. And he's 15. Like, I'm sorry. I was a wreck at 15 and I hadn't seen anyone die. I specifically had a lot of trouble reading through the beginning parts of five because Harry was a wreck and 15 because I was also 15 and a wreck. And like, I get it. I don't need pages of like explaining why this is a thing. Just move on. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Um, But for me with the movie, my problem is that with a few exceptions, mainly the actors who are especially new to the movie, like Umbridge and Voldemort actually being Voldemort instead of baby Voldemort, Mm. I feel like a lot of the returning actors seem dead inside (laughs) for so much of the movie. Like the the part that always gets me, there's a part in the beginning, they're in Grimmauld Place and Harry is arguing with Ron and Hermione about like, But why would he want to keep me in the dark? I mean, maybe I could help. After all, I'm, I'm the one who saw Voldemort return. I'm the one who fought him. I'm the one who saw Cedric Diggory get killed. And then the twins come in like, Harry, don't we heard your dulcet tones? Don't bottle it up though, mate. Let it out. Anyway, if you're all done shouting. He was actually speaking at a completely normal volume. In the books, he's like screaming this. But in the movies, like, it's like their emotions just aren't there anymore. It got cut away with all of their Goblet of Fire haircuts, I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, <laughs> there are some like shining moments here and there. But uh, I can't remember... Umbridge's actress's name, even though I know it. Oh, yeah, when you say it, I'll know. But anyway, but like, she's great. She is perfect. Yeah. As Umbridge. Pitch perfect casting by Imelda Staunton. She's clearly having a really good time with this role, bringing it to life exactly yes. as it needs to be. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and they, they have altered the character of Umbridge slightly from the book, but I honestly think that's a good thing. She doesn't give, give off quite as much of the, like, toad vibe that I think the book describes her having, but I think it works a lot better. Yeah, I think she's definitely a toad on the inside. Mm-hmm. 
Yes. No, I think she's actually much scarier as like someone's just freely evil Republican aunt. Yes. Yeah. I feel like she's giving me a lot of like Cinderella stepmother vibes. Mm-hmm. Mm. The way that everyone else is wearing these like dark colors and she's the only person who's allowed to have any kind of color in her outfits is like it works very well visually for what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. I agree. <laughs> I hadn't thought about it. So speaking of not having colors, I think that bothered me a lot in this movie, I'm not sure why, is that the potions classroom has like no light sources, which is wild to me. Have you ever tried to cook in the dark? You can't read the labels. That You need like light sources in this room. I mean, the potions class is in the dungeons. Yeah, you have Lumos as a spell. We have this new thing called light bulbs. Yeah. Because they like, I mean, they can light up anywhere else. I was thinking about that in Seven when they went into Gringotts into the vaults and there was no natural like no lighting at all they didn't have any lanterns i was like this seems really inconvenient (laughs) yeah these films came out during a period of hollywood where they didn't really know how to have a dark and moody scene but still have it readable much more recently we've had the use of colored lights to show a dark scene but still have characters be red and honestly, having stage classroom lit up all like teal and green and very unnatural colors that are still bright would work really well for mm-hmm. the vibe, I think, that Snape has. Yeah. It was not a trend in Hollywood at the time, and I'm glad that that trend is slowly passing because I am so tired of watching films and not being able to tell what the fuck is going on. Mm-hmm. But speaking about like color and palettes and lighting, at the very beginning of the film, we actually get some significant scenes with Harry at the Dursleys, which we haven't really gotten since the first movie. And we get the whole Dementor attack scene. And I love how the palette starts off as this like very warm, like almost westerny feeling color palette that is immediately drained as soon as the Dementor shows up. Mm -hmm. I like that a lot. I was thinking about that when it started. I have for some reason this like really intense sense memory of the very beginning of the book Order of the Phoenix Mm -hmm. and it talks about how hot it was that summer Mm, and just how like absolutely overbearingly hot it was watching the beginning of the movie I was like oh wow they're getting that across really well and I think part of that was just how warm everything felt color wise and I think that especially makes it neat that the color completely changes with the Dementors because Dementors also make the surroundings cold like they physically change the temperature of the area they're in and it felt that way it did suddenly feel very dank and cold and damp Mm. and these movies have a lot of cool colors so it's hard for them to keep their palette while still having the sense of heat so good job whoever the cinematographer is I also really like the exchange that Dudley and Harry have. I know a lot of the lines are lifted from the book, mm. but... Eat up another ten-year-old. This one deserved it. Fantastic exchange. Yeah. yeah. And it's shot really well, too, in this kind of... It has, like, a Wes Anderson vibe to the shooting, and I'm like, yeah, it's good. That's what I want. Imagine Wes Anderson's Harry Potter. But I don't think that the characters are adult enough for Wes Anderson to That's play fair. with. That's true. Yeah, he kind of needs children who speak like adults. Um, speaking of the Unreal, let's talk about how Luna fucking Lovegood shows up in this movie. I love She's her. so good. There's just nothing bad to say about Luna, other than I don't know why she ended up back at Hogwarts in Seven, but that's a whole other thing. That's fair. Yeah, it's odd. And the actress is so good. Right? Oh yeah, they nailed Luna. It, it's a fantastic performance. They did great casting. Honestly, my only complaint, and this is... A complaint I have with a lot of the characters that show up in later books is that they knew they were coming and they didn't seed them earlier into the films. 
And like, I get it for movies one and two where they're so far out that not all the books have been written yet. That's fair. But I think we could have gotten Cho and Luna and um, Lavender Brown. Oh, we're, we're getting there. We're getting there. Yeah. One little thing I really appreciate, during the Tyranny of Umbridge sequence, there's a bit where we see Fred and George comforting a child who, like, like had the writing on the back of their hand. Uh, these movies get Fred and George, even though we get so, so little of them. They understand who they are as characters really well. Mm-hmm. So, I have a lot of conflicted feelings on the Weasley twins, mm. where I both love and hate them in some ways. Because I, I love them very much for things like that, and then there are also things that aren't in the movies but are in the books that they have done where I'm like, you made that sound funny, but that's quite bad. (laughs) Like, locking that Slytherin child in the vanishing cabinet, and when he came back, he was half-starved to death, and everyone was like, oh, this is so funny. You Weasley twins sure starved that boy. (laughs) That's horrible. I mean, the Slytherins aren't real people. No, not, no. (laughs) J.K. Rowling keeps saying, oh, yeah, like, the Slytherins have can be good too but the story doesn't back that up at all no Her choices with them backs it up literally zero but that's a whole other thing we will get to later <laughs> I, I was shouting last night when we, were watching <laughs> when we were watching part two i just started shouting um. <laughs> but i have a lot of slytherin feelings mm-hmm. um, but no the weasley twins in general though like other than that which makes sense. Like, it's sort of thing where I can't really hold it against them specifically as characters. It's much easier to hold it against J.K. Rowling. Yeah. <laughs> because it's one of those points where their moments of genuine cruelty towards Slytherins is kind of weird with the rest of their character because the rest of their character is that, like, they're goofballs and they do pranks and some of them are, like, dangerous, but they're primarily really kind they want to take care of people and they want to make people laugh that's what they feel they can contribute to the world it's not just that they're like mindless goofballs though they're also goofballs mm, for sure that's how they take care of people is by making them laugh and i love that is that's why like those moments of cruelty are so weird to me and so jarring but at least the movies kind of to my memory don't include a lot of that yeah and i will say that while cruelty bad but they also live in a world where you can regrow bones in a night so like well, that doesn't make harming people okay. I can understand how they would have less of a sense that harming people is bad if cure light wounds potions are just readily available. It's the same way that people who grow up incredibly privileged just don't get people who haven't. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Bringing up the Weasley twins also brings up there are some significant changes between the events of this film and what happens in the book. Oh, yeah, this is why you stopped watching the film back in the, about a yep. long time ago. So. About halfway through film five is where I stopped watching the Harry Potter films as they were coming out. Uh, Specifically, they got to the scene where, in the books, Fred and George turned the Great Hall into a swamp. Yes. In the film, they just kind of fly in, shoot off some fireworks, and then peace out. And it just feels very shallow. I liked the turning into a swamp because it took them days to clean it up, and it it was also symbolic of what Hogwarts had become under Umbridge. No, see, like, more specifically, why I actually do love that part in the book is it took them days to clean it up, but not because it actually would. Flitwick knew how to get rid of it. He just didn't. Mm-hmm. Like, he, he acts mm-hmm. like he's struggling with it, but, like, the book really strongly insinuates that he could have gotten rid of it very quickly. But he was mm-hmm. proud of what the Weasley twins had done, which you see a little bit of that in the in the movie. 
and he wanted to make Umbridge's life harder, so he just pretended that it was a much harder charm to get rid of than it actually was. And I actually, I was thinking about that mm. the entire time during that scene. Like, I think it's still pretty good, but I specifically missed that interaction of something they did being more permanent, and especially being mm-hmm. more permanent because a member of staff basically helped it be that way. Mm-hmm. I think from a filmmaking standpoint, the film had been kind of grim for a little while until we get to that scene. So the triumphant levity of the fireworks is probably a little bit more fun than a swamp would be. So I understand how that change makes sense from a emotional standpoint of the film. But I think you're right that we could have had more depth if they'd gone with what was yeah. in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Another big change that I was really not a fan of previously was the removal of Ferenz as the divination mm-hmm. teacher. Yeah. Just because I love Ferenz as a character. I think he's really interesting. But watching it as an adult and with a eye for film, I understand why these choices were made. And I like Five a lot more now than I did back then. Speaking of the removal of teachers, the bit where Trelawney is being sacked and McGonagall standing up for her is so good and like hits me right in the feelings. Mm-hmm. Something you'd like to say, dear? Oh, there are several things I would like to say. I love it so much. Uh, Zay Cooley on Twitter is talking about how like we ought to have Oscars for people who don't have like a standout thing in a particular film but are really good for a series and how like Maggie Smith should have that Oscar for how she's consistently great all the way through the movies. Mm -hmm. She's amazing even in like the last but least in part two she was like battling cancer while filming that. Shit okay. Yeah and she's still amazing. There's uh, another really great McGonagall scene from Order of the Phoenix, she has this, like, stair-stepping, like, pissing contest with Umbridge about... Oh my god. (laughs) ...about rules at Hogwarts before Umbridge gets given, like, complete control by the Ministry. And it is fantastic. So silly of me, but it sounds as if you're questioning my authority in my own classroom. Minerva. Not at all, Dolores. Merely your medieval methods. That scene feels like straight out of Downton Abbey. I'm like, yeah, it's good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it does. I have one last thing that Order of the Phoenix does. This is kind of a problem I have with the whole series. A lot of spells aren't very interesting. Like they turn the spells from the books that are like weird and quirky and fun to just lasers. Oh my God. I, yeah, I have a huge problem with the magic in the movies. Mm-hmm. And especially then you get the Death Eaters who, like, have dark teleportation and the Order of the Phoenix who have light teleportation like it's a fucking Charmed <gasps> episode. I, I hate it. <laughs> I really hate the effect that they, they used for Apparition. Like, this that weird implosion effect. I also really hate that later on when Dobby comes back, they've changed his Apparition to be that now. Instead of that cool, like, twinkling thing that we had before. Mm-hmm. Maybe y'all can clear this up for me, because that's actually something I was trying to figure out last night that I was very confused about. So with the thing with their wizards flying around as smoke for reasons. Reasons, yeah. Um, I started calling it Dark Apparition. <laughs> the Dark Lighters. I can't remember if this was something I got from the books or something else. The impression I had gotten a while back was that when they were doing that, they were apparating. And that for some reason, they could just apparate by flying as smoke and still being able to cast spells while in that smoke and get hit, even though no other apparition looks that way. But what is that supposed to be? Because wizards aren't supposed to be able to fly without assistance from, like, a broom. That's a big deal that in, like, book seven, Voldemort can fly without a broom or anything. Like, that was, like, a whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. 
it is never explained. It was just what they chose to do, and JK signed off on it. Because it just drove me nuts, especially what, okay, I love a lot about the Battle of Hogwarts. I hate that. Because it all it makes me think the entire time is, why are they doing this all the time? If they can fly super fast as smoke and still cast spells at the same time, and they can be hit, but not easily, it's like, why not? Yeah, you, ha- you have air superiority. Yeah. All the stuff they did to like break down that bridge, none of that matters if they can all just fly. I feel like, at least at some point, it's a way to not have to have all these incredibly talented professional actors standing around for, like, hours at a time pointing sticks at each other. And, like, you can can save on budget that way if if they're just, like, CGI people going, but it does kind of cheapen the the magic a bit. Mm -hmm. Oh, one other thing I want to touch on before we get to the end segment. Grop looks terrible. Ooh. (laughs) Ooh, that's CGI. Like, Grop looks just as bad as the troll from the first movie. And it's been, like, six years. (laughs) Yeah, not sure how they managed that. Because Dobby looks great, and Dobby is just the same thing, but small. Yeah, the dragons from 4 looked pretty good. The basilisk and the acromantula from the second film looked great, but they were also more animatronic. You can't really do animatronics with something like Rop, so I get it, but he looks very bad. I also don't really get why they kept him in. It was not worth it. Yeah. I really think that given that Aragog dies in the next movie, we should have just had Aragog do all the things that Grop does in the narrative and just like kind of make that character consistent all the way through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's not like he ends up mattering at all. Yeah. The way he does in the books. <laughs> Doesn't he help defeat Umbridge? Like, I get how that matters there, but like, you could have had anything and ooh, giant spider works just fine. Yeah. Who's your giant spider puppet? You paid for it. Yeah. And also, like, if instead of, oh, my half-brother is here, if it was like, hey, Aragog is dying of old age, please take care of him, that could have been really, like, fun and led into the whole thing where he's dead in the next movie. Mm -hmm. That's true. That's true. I agree with that. A lot of my complaints about the films are things where they kept stuff from the books that they didn't strictly need to, and that is the opposite of how I felt as a child, where, like, they left things out of the movies for consistency, and I was like, no, bad. See, the thing is, they did both. They kept the non-important things in the movie, and they skipped over very important things. We're getting we're getting there. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm trying not to just keep complaining about three. <laughs> oh, that's the movie I was thinking of. I'm glad we're on the same page with that. Three is the one I think of very strongly with yep. that. Because, hey, if you haven't read the books, who are the Marauders? <laughs> so every time that someone who knew James Potter was on screen with Harry and there was a moment of silence, Shag would just mention, also, your dad could turn into a stag. <laughs> Yep, every time. <laughs> He's never told, ever. No. He, we find out what Snape's and his mom's Patronus is, but never his dad's. We're getting there, we're getting there. Yeah, no, there's so much that they never actually in the movies tell Harry about the Marauders and their powers and all of that. It's wild. But anyway. I also that as Voldemort was like finally dying in movie eight, I, I muttered uh, under my breath, also your dad could turn into a stag. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Oh, and the drink counter for movie five. These are Dumbledore's questionable decisions relating to Harry Potter. One of them being telling everybody not to write to him, not letting Harry talk in that one scene, <laughs> and then also not telling Harry that he's a prophecy. Also, not teaching Harry occlumency himself. Right. And putting it on Snape for reasons. Yeah, I think it was like punishment for both of them. <laughs> I mean, I think part of it is because Dumbledore is a messy bitch. <laughs> it's really true. <laughs> He is a messy gay bench that loves drama. It's very true. He really is. 
And like, I respect that up until you're like leading a war. Yes. If he wants to make sure that Harry isn't in his mind so Voldemort can't get to him through sensate rules, I guess. Surely there's literally anyone else he could hire to do Occlumency than the person who was like abused by Harry's father as a child. And who has abused Harry as a child. Yes. There has to be a better way. Surely the Kingsley Shackles or someone could know this thing. But speaking of teachers in conflict of interest, let's get into the Half-Blood Prince. Oh boy. (laughs) So I think my major complaint with Half-Blood Prince is so much of it is all about interpersonal relationship. Like there's no central outside tension from Voldemort in this film, really. Or rather there is, but we aren't aware of it because these movies refuse to let uh, Draco Malfoy be a character. Yeah. Thank you. There's only there's There are two main things wrong with Half-Blood Prince. One of them is it's not all about Draco Malfoy, and it should mm-hmm. be. Yeah. The second one is that scene in the Room of Requirement when Ginny hides that textbook, and it's just all weird... Every scene with Ginny and Harry. Harry and who? I don't know who you're talking about. I don't... She's had like two lines the entire series. Um, oh, so yeah. awkward. At this point, couldn't tell you exactly what happens because every time they're together on screen alone, I look away. And yeah. notice I have less chemistry than a fourth grade science class. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> There's a reason my notes also say Luna, Harry, OTP because in these movies... Just reading the books, I never got Harry Luna shippers, and then watching the movies, I'm like, ah, I understand now. Because I'm pretty sure David Yates is a Harry Luna shipper, because- As he should be. Every scene between those two, like, they get each other, and Harry is- just understands Luna's weirdness. See, I think he's kind of a Harry Hermione shipper. Mm, I can also see that. I mean, I also am- (laughs) But I'm, I ship everything. That's the problem. Like, I will ship everyone with everything. So don't even... I'm not sure if you've listened to the previous episode, but we talk about the pivot between movie two and movie three, where JK's like, uh, no, Hermione and Ron are going to be a thing. Start seeding that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was the important thing to start seeding. <laughs> that relationship. I would generally agree, though, that I feel like Harry's true chemistry in the movies is with Luna and, of course, Draco Malfoy. But that's a whole other thing. Uh, <laughs> Don't worry about that. That takes me back to my uh, my fanfic reading days. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Same. Like, I don't want to imply that people who like read fanfic now my age are like juvenile or anything. But just like, that was more of a thing I was doing when I was a teen. And that was like a big part of it. it was like, ah, yes. Honestly, like, fan fiction is probably much higher quality now than it was then. So they're making better choices than you did. Fan fiction also includes Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. So that's <laughs> <laughs> not fan fiction, though. That's the screenplays were written by JK. That's true. No fans like them, so it's fine. <laughs> Anyway, we're not talking about that. We're talking about how women of color in these movies only exist as a sex object for Harry, and it's weird. It is. It is all very weird. <laughs> I wish the movie had given up on romance, because it's all super weird. And, like, the ones that, are, that actually kind of work, they just don't give any time to. Mm-hmm. There's not really a relationship, if I just go by the movie chemistry, that I, like, yeah. care about very much. Between films three and up until six they had spent no time on interpersonal relationships like it's a huge reason why Goblet of Fire just doesn't work yeah Mm -hmm. and relationship drama and how that all plays out is a huge focus of the sixth book and so they are scrambling to try and 
make up for lost time and get it to work, and it does not. No. And I do kind of like the John Hughes vibe that this movie has on its own as like a separate thing, mm-hmm. but I think that it doesn't feel coherent with the rest of the films, or at least not with, with what's before and what's after. Yeah. Yeah, because everything comes out of nowhere. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, like, I'm totally down for that John Hughes direction, but there's no precedence for it, and we're introducing a bunch of characters. Like, they introduce Lavender Brown, and I don't even think they, like, say her name. She's just a character suddenly. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they do. Even though there was a character who was an extra who was kind of chosen as Lavender Brown, and uh, that young actress was black, mm-hmm. this Lavender is not. Yep, it's fine. It's fine. It's, <laughs> oh. it's very fine. Potter and Race, not just not not good together. N- not great. No. So it's been a hot minute since watching this because we've we watched a lot of these and then the quarantine happened, so we, we haven't gotten to record quite as soon as planned. So I don't know what exactly made me write down hashtag why are men in my notes, but that's definitely a feeling I have for these movie for this movie. Yes, men are trash, but also in this film, women are trash. Like there's this scene in potions class where they're all inching towards the love potion. Oh my god. And then we have the attempted mind control and sexual assaults. Yep, super gross. Yep. Oh. R- Ramel Devane should be in jail. Yes. Maybe not Azkaban, but like minimum security was your jail. Whatever that looks like. To be fair, I didn't talk about it last episode, even though I meant to, but like the vibe I get from the movie is that the default setting for Wizards is dark and that it is only places like Hogwarts and the borough where you produce non-evil wizards. <laughs> So, I feel like your options are Freedom or Azkaban, because again, Dark Wizards. Yeah, they don't really have an in-between prison, huh? I'm not sure what that would be like. We, we don't need to get into my feelings about the prison system. It's fine, it's fine. Like, I'm just thinking, if they do only imprison the very worst of them and everyone else gets other forms of punishment, then does that mean they have a better prison system? Are they abolitionists a little bit? They have slaves. They can't be- Well, okay. <laughs> you can't have okay. both. I always, I always try to forget about that. Yeah. Well, to be fair, so does the movie. I mean, yeah. On a much lighter note, I, I want to move over to Slughorn. Oh, yeah. Mm. I love him. I think the portrayal of him is pretty good from a, like, personality perspective, but that is not how at all how I pictured Slughorn looking. I pictured British Wilford Brimley. Wilford Blimey? <laughs> God damn it. I think the way you described him when you were trying to figure out how to express that concept was that he should have been like one of the people who are the decoy Alan Quartermains from the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, and I described him as he could have been like like the retired Air Force guy from The Mummy. Yes. I don't know. What about you, Sarah? Like, did you picture Slughorn differently? I am trying to remember. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the problem is, is that... Now I'm so far away from the first time I read Half-Blood Prince and so much closer to the like dozen times I've seen the movie mm. that he is that actor in my mind now. And so I, I also, I'm one of those people who doesn't picture characters very well. Mm, ah. Sure. One of the things I really like about Harry Potter that makes it easier is that she does have, every character has like that characteristic, you know, mm, yeah. that you can cling to. You can cling to the lightning scar, you can, and the green eyes, mm-hmm. uh, not in these films, but you know, <laughs> in general. You can, you can cling to Hermione's bushy hair again, not in these films. Uh, but like, it's just like, that's in the books. That's what always got me through a little bit. That's why I couldn't read Game of Thrones, the books until I watched the show, because there were so many characters and I couldn't form a picture of any of them. 
That's fair. Yeah, so we have Jim Broadbent as S. Lughorn, who I think, like, you're right that he does a good job of, like, being this character. Mm -hmm. Um, I I understand why, like, he, like, read back into the book as memory. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, Daniel Radcliffe gets to have fun in this movie. Like, when he's on the Felix Felicis, he gets to, like, have a good time and be the guns taped to my hands and can't remove them kind of wacky that he will become in the future. (laughs) Say one more thing about Slughorn, which is that the the one problem Mm -hmm. I do have with that actor is that I can only picture him as his role in Moulin Rouge because I've seen Moulin Rouge about a million times so I keep expecting him to be like everything's going so well um, uh, and no actually Daniel Radcliffe having fun in this movie is why I really is one of the reasons I really like this movie What the first time I saw the movie was very funny to me and was very funny to me this time as well there's, some, there's something about when they're at Aragog's corpse and they're talking about the ways that acromantulas kind of freak people out and harry is like not to mention the pincers anyway, <laughs> his tongue yes. it's like so funny to me it's so small there's so many small things daniel radcliffe does that are just like hilarious and i love it and he just seemed to be having fun which is so different from order of the phoenix where they all seem to be dead <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Like, honestly, there are a lot of these, like, small character moments and these slow character driven scenes that I really enjoy in Six, but I wish we had more throughout the series and it wasn't just yes. plot, 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 plot. Yeah. Highly agree. We haven't really talked about the plot much, but, like, Dumbledore dies in this one. <laughs> Big things happen. Yeah. We get a lot oh. more backstory into Voldemort and. Don't need it. <laughs> we don't really need it. I like it, though. I love Voldemort's backstory. I'm glad we don't go back to, like, his terrible, abusive mom and... And all that gross. Yeah, like, I'm really glad that you're like, no, we we don't need it. We're just gonna have Dumbledore's first meeting with him, and we're gonna hit all the signs of uh, sociopathy. I can make animals do what I want without training them. I can make bad things happen to people who are mean to me. Can make them hurt if I want. And Dumbledore being like, "Hmm, this would be a great time to hire a therapist." Oh, wait, what? Nope, don't have the budget for that. Whoopsies. <laughs> Wizards don't need therapists. Wizards deeply need therapists. So this is the thing I meant to bring up in Order of the Phoenix. I'm just wrong all the time about how like there are some educational standards that need to be like moved up. Oh, absolutely. A lot is wrong at Hogwarts. Um, if we're talking about Dumbledore and Half-Blood Prince, there's a scene that I think it's so small and I had never caught it before that it's so funny that I think it's, I think it's right after Harry learns what the Horcruxes are. I can't remember for sure, but they're in his office, they're in Dumbledore's office and they do this tiny little like montage of the ways Harry is clearly a Horcrux, but we don't know that yet, but Dumbledore gets a look on his face like, oh, fuck. The kid's a Horcrux. Like he, I think, like I think we're supposed to believe he knew this a lot for a long time, but he has a look on his face in that scene where it's like he just suddenly realized it, and is really struggling to not yell like shit. <laughs> so I don't know if I know what scene you mean. It's very small. It's it's the sort of thing that is literally like a passing look on his face but that if you watch Mm. it again and you watch for that i think you'll see it i am guessing because ian also saw it if it was just me i'd feel more doubtful but ian saw it too because we could not stop joking about it the rest of the movies Mm -hmm. 
Well, let's go ahead and talk about Snape. Ah, uh, yes. Snape. I mean, like, we, we've talked a little bit about Snape before and his oculomancy with Harry and Alan Rickman just being an incredible casting choice and just hamming it up. Utterly unparalleled. R.I.P. to whoever has to be, like, the Snape in whatever reboot we're going to have in a, like, decade or two. Yeah. But the reveal (laughs) of Half-Blood Prince, like, who that is, is so completely inconsequential (laughs) in this film. And it, that subtitle may as well not exist. Mm -hmm. I'm the Half-Blood Prince. Bye! (laughs) (laughs) And they don't explain it. They don't explain what that means. Because it's a whole, like, it makes no sense in the movie. Because they don't have any of the backstory about, like, how hard it was for Snape to be a half-blood in Slytherin to have a muggle father. And, um how much it meant that his mother was a witch and she was a prince who was like, I think a pure blood family. Mm-hmm. So you don't explain that that's like, that's what it was. Mm-hmm. That dialogue could have gone down like, using my own spells against me, Harry. Don't you realize that I am the half-blood prince? Harry going, what does that make us? Absolutely nothing, which is exactly what you are about to become. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's about how much of a like weight that scene had. Very, very freaking little. Because I notoriously h- hate Snape very much. He's a great character. Yeah. I just hate him. Um, yes. But I, I admit, like, the movies always make me struggle a little more because Alan Rickman is so good. And so I want to, like, love him. I want to feel for him in part two, especially with his death. Like, I, it makes me want to feel things. Also, I'm just incredibly easily influenced. Put some sappy music in the background of someone, and I'm like, <laughs> okay, I'm so sorry for everything I've said about them. <laughs> okay, I went the exact opposite way because of the movies. I hate Satan more because of the movies. <laughs> I, I, but we'll like, get to that. I mean, if I actually ever think about Snape, I hate him. I hate him. (laughs) Oh my god, I was like, I I start, that's like one of the, I I try to start fights on the internet. Snape is one of the things I'll start fights about. (laughs) Because I hate him. But we need to talk about the fact that Snape was so cruel to a kid that this kid whose parents were tortured into insanity by a Death Eater fears Snape more. (laughs) Yeah, that's horrifying why was that not a cause for like an immediate hr conversation with everybody involved including lupin Mm -hmm. like it says so much because i'm like yeah snape had a shitty time at school but who didn't have a shitty time in high school i have i have not abused any children of my of my bullies (laughs) i have avoided that i don't know any of them anymore either it's a much he lives in a much smaller world but right oh Anyway, I hate. Snape. It's kind of a sky high problem where there's only about like fifty people in this in this narrative, so like they have to both teach the people they don't like and also be around them all the time. Wow, I can't believe yeah. Sky High as a film does a better job of like breaking problematic cycles than a Harry Potter does. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, How do we feel about the that scene in the cave? Something feels off about it, but I'm not sure what. I agree, but I still don't know what it is either. On the one side. I think it's really kind of effective because I think the whole thing with Harry having to like force Dumbledore to drink this and the way Dumbledore like acts during that is really jarring in a way that I think is it's supposed to be. Yes. And it's really upsetting to watch. But for me, the scene loses whatever it has already for me when the zombies come, they, which I don't remember what they're called. There's a whole thing in the books, but I don't, I don't know why, but the scene kind of becomes less interesting to me immediately. Maybe because it's like too much of like action, whereas we had a very emotional 
moment right before. Mm-hmm. I think part of what doesn't work for that scene for me is there's not a whole lot of buildup to like going there. In the books, like it's months of research and planning and like, okay, I think I found one. Harry, you need to come with me. All of the sessions with Dumbledore in the Pensieve are leading up to that moment. And we don't have that here. And so there's not that huge sense of payoff that there was in the book. Yeah. That's true. It does kind of just feel like Dumbledore is one day like, Harry, let's go on a very dangerous field trip. Yeah. I think (laughs) in the book, the payoff is getting the locket. And then it becomes a theoric victory because of the death of Dumbledore. Because he was so focused on that, he didn't see what was going on with Draco. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the locket being... Whereas the film pivots to the death of Dumbledore being the focal point. And this is just kind of a step along in that direction. He is weakened and that's why he's fa- he falls. Mm-hmm. Well, wait, sorry. Uh, backing up. Dumbledore knew what was going on with Draco from like the beginning of the year. He died. He knew he was going to die. That's that's true, I guess. Because that's why Snape kills him is because Dumbledore specifically does not want Draco to kill him. Mm-hmm. Because he knows, and he knows he's going to die because of the poison in the ring. Snape killing him does two yeah. things. It saves Draco and it makes Voldemort trust Snape yeah. completely. I am thinking more about my perspective reading only five as opposed to reading the books later that explain what was going on behind the scenes. Okay, yeah, that's true. That's true. I will say that, like, I am glad that he wanted to say Draco Malfoy, but also I feel like there were more hands-on approaches there. Oh, absolutely. Also, look at what great of a job he did saving Harry Potter. (laughs) I'm not saying he was successful (laughs) or that he went about it in a good way. Draco did very few things in a good way. But he, in his own terrible messy way where he's allergic to direct conversation because he just wants that drama so bad he made an attempt was made there was an attempt there was an attempt an attempt was made the only time i've ever seen dumbledore have like a direct conversation with someone is when he asked harry if he was dating hermione what about your activities outside the classroom sir Well, I notice you spend a great deal of time with Miss Granger. I can't help wondering if... Oh, no. (laughs) You could tell he was asking because, like, the faculty have a pool going and he was just, like, trying to settle it. Yeah, that really weird. Hey, Harry, are you getting laid? I need to know. This is how we make conversations. (laughs) You need those happy thoughts, Harry. Anyway, how is your sex life? Uh... All right, let's go ahead and get to Dumbledore drinking game and oh, yeah. then move on to seven. Uh, so recipes, Dumbledore, here's what we're drinking for. Um, bringing no backup to the whole grab the Horcrux in the cave scene. Like, you bring Hermione Granger on any quest automatically. Not hiring a therapist for <laughs> the whole thing where he uses, like, Harry as, like, an anglerfish to get Slughorn. Th- those are my three big ones. Mm-hmm. I also make an argument for the whole, like, you should kill me if this is my best plan. <laughs> I feel like he could have let people in on that slightly more, mm-hmm. but at least three for this movie. I'll say that I think that him using Harry as like an anglerfish sort of light for his slughorn is maybe at least one of the times he's been the most honest about his manipulations. That's true. <laughs> at least Harry picked up on it pretty quickly. Like, oh, I get it. I yeah. see what's happening. Whereas everything else he did, he was just like... My machinations lay undetected for years. I am playing five-dimensional chess with death, and I have not even told death that I'm doing this. <laughs> yeah. I will say I really like the conversation between Dumbledore and Harry in the film, which is like... You said Professor Slughorn will try to collect me. 
I did. Do you want me to let him? <laughs> like, yes. what, what do you want me to do? <laughs> uh. I will say, I do feel like this movie did a good job, because this comes up in Seven, of really making Harry feel like Dumbledore's man. It really yeah. drove that point home, and it made the points in 7 and 7.2 where he has to start kind of maybe doubting Dumbledore actually, to me, kind of hit really well. Mm-hmm. Mm, for sure. Because in 6, you so clearly see the way Harry is like willing to follow Dumbledore into anything unquestioning. Yes. Yeah. But speaking of Deathly Hallows, let's get into the final films. The thing I know most about Deathly Hallows Part 1 is that that two and a half hour movie is actually five hours <laughs> that movie I li- the thing is I wasn't bored or anything I like that movie it's just that there were points it's so where slow it's so slow and then I would like look at the time and I would go oh it's been like an hour that no I don't think that's right like it just felt like it went on forever they just took all the slow character moments from the entire series <laughs> and put them in six and seven part one. And they're all there. And that's why those films are bad. Six and seven part one are the like low security wizard jail. Oh my gosh. It was... I think part of the problem with Deathly Hallows part one is that a lot of it is they're walking through the woods or whatever, but we don't necessarily know where they are in relation to other things or where they're going or how close they are to whatever that thing is. Yeah, there's no clear goal there. There's a lot of aimlessness. Which I think could be fine if the movie was like playing up that aimlessness and playing up things if you don't know like where we are, where we're going or why we're doing it. That could be fine if they really like dug into that. But I feel like they don't do quite enough of that to make it feel intentional. So it just winds up being like we're sort of doing a very long version of Lost in the Woods from Frozen 2. I think there's a portion of it where, to me, they were clearly trying to play it up. There's a portion where it stops working. But, like, there's definitely a portion to me where I think it's from right after they escape the Ministry up until they are able to destroy the locket. That whole section to me actually does read, like, very aimless in a very purposeful way where you can see... Harry having no idea what's going on you can tell that he is stressed about not knowing what's going on and obviously there's like the growing tension between him and Ron and Ron losing faith in him he doesn't know what he's doing does he and their growing frustration about like we do not know how to destroy this thing we don't know how to find the next horcrux we don't know how to find the thing that will destroy this thing and it they feel very lost and like they just keep moving from campsite to campsite both because of a security issue but also because they are people who need to keep moving to feel like they just are moving at all. Mm. It, it worked for me. It was like, yeah, this feels like they're very lost because they are. We don't know what's going on because they don't know what's going on. Although there were, there were also a lot of points where we had to pause and argue about what they would should have already known about the Horcruxes versus what we only think they should know because we know. And that got confusing. I got confused at very many parts during both movies about how much they knew. So you know that scene in Avengers Endgame where there's like sitting in an office with like hollow projections of the Infinity Stones tracking where they are at different points in the movies? Yeah. We kind of needed that for the Horcruxes. Yes. Like we need like a chalkboard probably in Sirius's house where like lay it all out and go, okay, so like question mark, question mark, question mark for these last three or mm-hmm. like... We know where and when, but not how, or we know what, but not where. Yeah. Part of it is because the movie, I feel like the movies don't do like a great job of explaining 
how they know the things they know. We know, if you read the books, why Voldemort chose these certain horcruxes. Yeah. We know why he chose the ring, the locket. We know about the relation to Hogwarts, and we know about how much Hogwarts means to Tom. Yeah. We understand those things, whereas I feel like in the movies it kind of just feels like, that object looks right. Harry can hear it whisper, so it Mm -hmm. must be a thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That doesn't land as well. That doesn't, like... It just doesn't work as well for me. It makes yeah. me more confused about what they know with, like, anything. Well, I guess, yeah, in, in with the cup, it's literally just that they go to Bellatrix's vault thinking there's probably something there. Guess we'll listen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, they have, like, that, like, mentality, and they're kind of, like, working out why he was thinking the things he was thinking, and they were thinking, okay, so what would what would correspond to this? Oh, it's probably this thing. Oh, like, I think, like, their direction was, like, we need to go find, like, this obscure book or obscure, like, museum of Helga Hufflepuff's history or whatever and figure out, like, what's... Yeah. Yeah. And Hermione and Ron are right there for him to do exposition at. Yeah, so. we, we could move that. In, like, I think some of that's like internal reading stuff in the book, but you can make that dialogue and be fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do want to talk about the beginning of the film because we've been focusing kind of on the, like, the weird, muddy middle. So six ends on the three of them up in the observatory tower, and there's almost a literal beacon of hope even after Dumbledore's death. Yeah. And then the tone completely changes to this bleak dark thing at the beginning of seven and it feels so weird and it's not like they changed directors or anything so i don't exactly know why that decision was made but it definitely feels weird i guess i don't either (laughs) yeah i do really like the like death eater conference at the beginning though it's one of the few scenes we get where harry's not involved Mm -hmm. and we just get some perspective on what the enemy is like they also have the one wizard who is like floating and paralyzed up in towards the back. And I really wish they had gone like f- more fully in with that. And they just have like, are you familiar with those restaurants where they like serve the food on like naked people's bodies? Yeah. I wanted a scene like that where the Death Eaters are just eating off of these like paralyzed wizards and muggles. And I think that would have like really set the scene for just how beneath them they feel Muggleborns and those who consort with them are to the pure-blooded wizards. Mm-hmm. Okay, that would make the beginning of the movie even darker. Yeah, <laughs> that's like straight up like Guillermo del Toro kind of approach to it, and I'm here for it. Yeah, I mean, I love Guillermo del Toro. Yeah. Also, like the Wizard Conference kind of has has this thing where I feel like we've all had a job where our boss wasn't always making great decisions, but he's the boss, so you kind of have to go with it. And that's kind of the vibe that I get with some of the, of the Death Eaters. Mm-hmm. We also get some more Helena Bottom Carter at the, yes. in that scene, and her like her delivery is like lustful about doing Voldemort's bidding, and it's just so perfect for that character. I feel um, like a monster because I don't like Helena Bottom Carter in these movies very much. Okay. I mean, I get, I mean, she works, it's the sort of thing where she, she works because a lot of people are really over the top, but in these movies especially, especially starting with Six, I, it was driving me fucking nuts how she was just whispering all the time, just mm. constantly like, Draco, is that Harry? Oh, Snape, you must make the unbreakable vow. It was just <laughs> driving me nuts. I read it as less whispery and more like breathy, again, going for like that lustful vibe. She just... 
she wants violence to happen. I, I mean, it's, it's something where it's like, I get it. And she's horny about it. I am also now struggling with this type of, like, character archetype a little bit. Like, I just don't That's like fair. it very much anymore. I used to like it, and I just don't. Because I, I, there are parts where I think she does really well, and parts where that works really well. But there are so many parts where... Mm-hmm. It's the sort of thing where it's like, that would have worked better if it had been in scenes where it made sense, instead of literally every single time she talks, mm-hmm. she's being breathy and whispering or cackling very, very loudly. Like that's like her two things. The time I most like yeah. her, like absolutely love her. She is Helena Bonham Carter pretending to be Emma Watson, how Hermione would pretend to be Bellatrix. She is perfect. <laughs> the way she, like she moves her face the way yes. Emma Watson moves her face. Mm-hmm. It reminds me that yeah. Helena Bonham Carter is great. And it's just that yeah. she she kind of, I don't know, she kind of falls into like a weird place as Bellatrix for me where I'm like, it makes me think a little bit too much of the way Johnny Depp does Jack Sparrow, where it's like, mm-hmm. it is mm-hmm. this one stereotype, this is who it is, this is the entire character, this is what I will play for the next like five years. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it feels like that. It is like just across all four, all four movies, it just got a bit much for. That's me. fair. But I know most people love her and it's fine. <laughs> Although there is a character who I really hate in these films. The actor they got for Bill Weasley is not cool enough to play Bill Weasley. I was so very disappointed. It, I don't like how they handle Bill Weasley at all. No, Bill is... He should have a leather jacket and a mohawk. Yeah, like, he should be, like, a full-on 80s punk. Like, he's and like he's at least supposed to have a ponytail, because that's, like, a whole thing. Or, no, is that Charlie? I don't remember. Okay, I mix up Bill and Charlie all the time. Which one's the dragon one? Charlie is the one who is works with dragons. Bill is the one who... It, Bill is the curse breaker. Yeah. yeah, he is the one who works for okay. Gringotts. Okay, thank you. I mixed them up. <laughs> if only we had, like, someone who's really good at breaking curses in this plot about trying to break cursed objects. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't they first meet him in this movie, or was that yep. six? Yeah, uh, he's yeah, not he, shown up before. Yeah, he is. He doesn't. That's right. He doesn't show up before now. This is the first time we've met him, which is why I like. I, I had never seen the movie's interpretation of Bill, and I was so disappointed when I did. Mm-hmm. Um, Isn't he also the guy from Star Wars? Oh my God, he is. Okay, yeah, he's Admiral Hux. So what? He's Admiral Hux. <laughs> Oh, God, what a terrible choice. Like, he's great for Hux, but he's terrible for Bill. Oh, no, I was imagining someone casting Adam Driver as young Snape. Oh? Hmm. Hmm. I mean, listen, baby Snape, like little child Snape, when he first showed up on the screen, I turned to Ian and I was like, is that Bill Skarsgård? (laughs) (laughs) Though we Uh had just watched it, and I'm also just kind of obsessed with Bill Skarsgård. As you should be. I love his weird Uh face. I also really wish that Bill and Fleur's wedding was more significant. Like, we spend so much time in that muddy middle, and we get barely any time at the wedding. Yeah. We could have had more, like, talking to characters thing. Like, I would have really loved if, like, a Hogwarts teacher had been there, and Harry just, like, got to interact with Flitwick or Sprout as a person instead of as a teacher-student. Yeah. Also, that would have been a great time to get some more information about Horcruxes. I mean, we get a little bit more information about Albus that comes up later, but... Eh. Yeah, like Xenophilius, who is wearing the Targaryen wig, is, um, he's wearing the, (laughs) they have one wig in all of the UK. (laughs) They're one blonde man's wig. (laughs) Also, he's, I realized he's Mycroft from elementary, so that, after I realized that, it was, but, um, he's wearing the Deathly Hallows symbol, and I don't remember this being in the movie, totally correct me if it is, but I know in the books, they, like that is seen as a symbol of Grindelwald. 
And so there's kind of like this conflict around when they discover more about like the Deathly Hallows. What is the connection to Grindelwald? Is this more dark magic? Is this evil? Is Xenophilius evil? A lot of conflict around that. And they talk Hmm. more to him and they also talk more to that one like Weasley aunt who is a huge gossip and I love her. They super do not get into that in the movies. Yeah, like absolutely none of that comes up. I think Grindelwald name is mentioned once in the movies. I think we see him in his cell in a flashback or something. Yeah, because we see him stealing the Elder One. Yeah, you see that. You see him kind of vaguely. I think he's like standing in like a tunnel or an alley or something and looks back and is like, I'm handsome and evil. And you see him for like two (laughs) seconds. Much as I want to complain about them for thousands of years, we're not here to talk about the movies where Nagini is a hot, cursed Korean lady. And where McGonagall is a teacher at Hogwarts before she was born. Yep. We're here to talk about the Deathly Hallows animation, which is really cool. Oh my god, I love it. Yes. Oh, it's so, so good. very good. That's the best part of this movie. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. 100. It's it's just so... Oh, it's so beautiful. I just love to look at it. You love to see it. I do also like, right after the wedding, how the film kind of becomes this like spy thriller throughout London. Yeah. And like the breaking into the ministry scenes are also really good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I wish we got more of that rather than all of the like mucking about in the woods yeah i think that like if the mucking about in the woods was happening maybe more in cities that could be kind of fun even just like like us seeing to, to like break up the woods where we're in i don't know cardiff or glasgow or whatever mm-hmm. just like in some alleyways mm-hmm. or something it could be kind, of, kind of like fun and exciting in a different way yeah mm-hmm. i agree with you on that because i mean i guess in the books they do a lot more of it and you kind of get to a point where you're like how much polyjuice potion do you fucking have but um... <laughs> I can imagine Hermione just, like, mass-producing it for years because she knows she's going to need it at some point. Mm-hmm. I will admit the movie had me wondering, but not that deeply because it doesn't fucking matter, about how shelf-stable Polyjuice <laughs> Potion is. That's fair. I don't care that much. <laughs> I kind of assume it's, like, the way I, like, make bread basically every week, and if some of it goes bad, oh no, I've, I'm going to make more today anyway. Also, doesn't brewing it take, like, a, a month. month? It takes a month. Yeah, but if... If you start a new batch every week, then you just have, like, that <laughs> batch. Uh, there's one last thing I want to po- talk about for part one. Does anyone else have anything? I'm trying to... Okay, so... Dobby needs clothes. Yes, that's exactly what okay. I want to talk about. <laughs> Wait, so I'm trying to remember. Part one ends with Dobby dying, correct? They go through, yeah. yes. They're in Malfoy Mansion. They get, like... Hermione gets briefly tortured. Uh, way less than I think she does in the books. Uh, Thankfully, yes. Yes, no, I'm fine with it. I'm not going to complain. I'm trying to remember, do they do the thing in the movies where Pettigrew gets strangled by his own hand? No. Not in the movie. Should have been. Should have been. Because they also don't do the thing where he has to, like, save Harry because he owes him, like, a life debt. Yeah. That's not in the Mm -hmm. movies, though. Nope. Okay, just try. I was trying to remember because I loved that in the books. And in the mm-hmm. movies, it's kind of like he's there, he says nothing, Dobby knocks him out with elf magic. Yep. Okay, mm-hmm. that's it. I was just wondering. But, uh, Deathly Hallows Part 1 reintroduces Dobby. Yes. We have not seen him since the second book. And I'm totally fine with him not showing up in 4. Uh, no. Oh, that's right. He isn't in the fourth movie, is he? He's in the fourth book. Or, yeah, I'm totally fine with him not showing up in 5 and not dealing with Spew and all of the <laughs> ethical ramifications of Hogwarts and having house elves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. But here, Dobby looks exactly the same, even though he's been free for five years. 
I really wish they would have, like, given him more clothes. He's just wearing socks. Yeah, in the books, he's just wearing every clothes. He's wearing some cute shoes. He's got cute shoes on. He's wearing, yeah, because Ron even compliments them. He's like, oh, we can try this. Okay. He's still also just wearing a sack, though. Like, yeah, he couldn't yeah. get, like, a t-shirt or... I like. I love how Dobby's portrayed in the books after he's freed. He's just, he gets all the clothes that he can wear on him at once. Mm-hmm. Like, he's got a bunch of scarves, like, three layers of socks, multiple hats on at the same time. Mm-hmm. No, it's great. It's great. I love it very much. It's very cute. It's very funny. It's a, it's a good character beat. I kind of wish Dobby had been at Bill and Fleur's wedding. I think that would have been like a really good time to like reintroduce him as a character. And yeah. then also like see what would this house of who wears all the clothes wear to a wedding? Yeah. yeah. I mean, we've talked before, I'm not sure on the podcast, about how we really wish that after Dobby was freed, like he just didn't know what to do with himself. And Molly Weasley's at home. All of her kids are now at Hogwarts or grown and she's lonely. And so Dobby just goes to live at the burrow, but is not, like, a servant. He's just another member of the family. Mm-hmm. That would have been nice. Like, knitting friends. Mm-hmm. I think with Dobby in the movie, if he was going to do the whole wearing all the clothes in the world thing, I think he could have been wearing at least slightly more interesting clothes, for sure. Um, oh, yeah. If he was going to... because Yeah, because the thing is, like, with wearing all the clothes, it is really cute, but that's the problem. It's too cute for Deathly Hollows. If, if, that's yeah, true. If he had been in the other movies, if we had seen him in every movie collecting clothes and we knew that, like, in the movies, we knew that was part of him, it would have maybe jived better because we would have just been, that's Dobby, rather than, what's that silly house elf doing? But, I mean, I still wish he had been wearing, like, I don't know, like a Chudley Cannons t-shirt <laughs> or something. Yeah, I wish that he had, like, any amount of, like, clothes changed besides the, the socks and the shoes. Yeah, Like, absolutely. something, but I don't definitely don't think that going how the book did it and just full-on, like, ragamuffin style of just all the clothes would have worked here. I think him wearing, like, a fairly dark but still having some color in it, sweater knitted by Molly Weasley with a big D on it would have been really cute. Yes. Oh, <laughs> I want that. <laughs> But also his death scene is very, like, moving and sad and would have been stronger if he'd been in more of the films, but it still works. Mm-hmm. Even if it's weird that, like, the knife can go through teleportation, whatever. Yeah, a- apparition makes no fucking sense in these movies. They change the rules constantly of apparition. It's a problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Whatever, I'll just go with them on it, since there are no rules. How That's long. true. There are no rules, the points don't matter. <laughs> Basically. And they change actors and animations for magics about as often as Buffy changes the vampire dusting effects. Yeah. Uh, the magic doesn't matter in these movies very much. In, I mean, this is like skipping slightly forward because I think this is in 7.2. Um, eh, sure. Where We're in, getting there. In Bellatrix's vault with that spell that duplicates the items, in the books, it also burns you. The duplicate items burn. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That is the thing in the books. It was horrifying to me as a, when I was reading it like as a teenager it's really scary that like they can't do anything to stop these things from multiplying and they're burning them in the movie it, it didn't matter because also in the movie the cup or in the book the cup multiplies so then they don't know what's the real cup and in the movie it's just kind of like a couple seconds of ah shit like, suddenly we're tripping over everything and making everything multiply we, yeah, we have suddenly Hermione and Ron become incredibly clumsy and just start knocking into things. We are being mildly inconvenienced. 
we may have to spend 10 minutes pushing our way out of these somewhat heavy but not very heavy objects. Mm -hmm. One of those examples of how like magic don't feel like they actually matter or are very as interesting as they are in books. Like there are a couple instances where they do some really cool spells like bringing Hogwarts to life. I have questions about it, but it's cool. So I'm not going to ask that many questions. Same. But like, Mm -hmm. it's just weird how like everything now is just, uh, I don't know, add Maxima to it. It's better now. <laughs> we we all took the uh, maximize spell meta magic feat. Basically. Uh. So one thing I want to talk about, and this kind of like bridges between the two films, is we see the like rating of Dumbledore's grave for the Elder Wand. Mm-hmm. Who designed <laughs> Dumbledore's like puzzle box grave? It's like this brutalist architecture, and like that doesn't fit Dumbledore at all. It's just like these white marble plinths and this like square box like where's the whimsy it should be covered in like statues depicting literally the entire history of greek mythology like or something like we should have the entire london underground like in trains that move going around it it is somewhat accurate to the book because it is just a marble slab i don't know if it's supposed to have like vague like Narnia reminiscence of like the the stone table but it kind of feels that way to me I don't know if it's supposed sure. to it does I like it better as if it's going to be simple I like it better as just a simple beautiful white marble slab as opposed to this weird yeah compl- yeah it feels huge it, it feels like, very heavy it yeah. feels very dark and I don't get it <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure if either of you are familiar, but the video game Control has a lot of, like, brutalist architecture, and it just feels like it, they palette-swapped it out of that video game. My thought was it looks kind of like a very simplified, like, Imperial Star Destroyer. <laughs> yes! The exact opposite of Dumbledore's vibe. Yes. I think they just needed it to look more complicated to break into the grave. Oh my god, you, you bring up Imperial Star Destroyer, and there's a thing that we didn't talk about in 7.1 that I want to go back to. Um fascist propaganda that the ministry is pumping out and how it doesn't fit. So like they do a good job of modeling a lot of the propaganda and posters and whatnot off of real world fascist propaganda. Mm-hmm. But the color palette doesn't make any sense for the wizarding world because it's all these like blacks and reds and that's not the colors that are associated with Voldemort. Red is associated with Gryffindor not Slytherin, and I really, honestly, it could have just been fixed by switching all of the reds to greens. Mm-hmm. Also, like, everything the Ministry has ever sent out hasn't been any color, it's just been, like, sepia-toned. But yeah, like, most of the stuff that we've seen before has all been, like, the Daily Prophet. Yeah. I could be into a scene where some Death Eater middle manager is like, mm, print it in color. Oh, we don't really have color. We can find you color. And there's, like, People's blood being drained to like use as the color for the propaganda that could be fun and creepy. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I agree that like that they're going for what's recognizable to us, not not what's recognizable to the world beyond. Or, what to, doesn't make sense for the world? Yeah, and I think that the audience is smart enough to like pick up on on what they're going for without having to like use like very obvious colors. Yeah, places. I mean, they already gave us clan robe Death Eaters in four. Yep, seven part one goes heavy on the white supremacist overtones for the Death Eaters and everything and it's definitely a weird change because before it was not as overt. And I mean it's also the thing where you have a bunch of white people oppressing a bunch of other white people for a race and a bunch of more white people stopping them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, what was wild to me about rewatching it this time is that I remember when I first saw it and I first read the books, I thought that the change was really, like, it was really sudden to how, like, suddenly public it all was, and I thought that was really weird. Mm. That has been less weird since 2016. You're not wrong. Suddenly mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, no, it does happen that way, huh? God damn it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For it was like, okay, I see, like, the racist Nazi, like, inspirations behind this, and now it's more like, mm, cool. This is just what we're living right now. Love it. Mm-hmm. <sighs> but speaking of living, uh, John Hurt is in the next movie. Yay! Yeah. I- I'm more celebrating like John Hurt who's a really like, good, fun yeah. actor. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, John Hurt is here to be kind of morally ambiguous. I like that Ollivander is played as kind of more about the potential achievement of magic than the like ethicality of it. Like he's more about coulda than shoulda. And I'm like, yeah, sure, that sounds good. That's a good a good character who isn't like morally ambiguous in a silly way like Snape is. Mm-hmm. Heist movie. Yes, there there is the Green Gods Heights, which I love. I don't necessarily love some of the shots because Emma Watson is wearing Bellatrix's costume and it shows off a lot of cleavage and the camera definitely likes to look at it. Yeah. Yeah, but like we get the heist at Gringotts and then it's all Hogwarts stuff pretty much. Yeah. The uh, Slytherins get banished. Yeah. I do like Aberforth. He's kind of a breath of fresh air after all of the mucking about in the woods and all the bullshit from the previous film. Yeah. He is not how I imagined him at all. I, I do have a very strong memory of like imagining him being more like Merlin from Disney's Sword in the Stone. Like scrawny and spindly and kind of kooky. Like not necessarily based on anything in particular, but I just have this like image of him as the, the sort of mad stick insects as opposed to this kind of saddled man. See, that's the exact opposite for me. Like I always pictured there's this huge physicality difference between... Albus and Aberforth. Mm-hmm. Aberforth, I always imagine, is much shorter, more uh, stout, mm. uh, broad-shouldered. Sure. Like, because he, he runs a bar, so he's got to, like, move shit around all the time. Mm, sure. There's actually a scene, he's never actually named, but in one of the earlier films, we see a barkeep with a goat, and I, like, it's obviously meant to be Aberforth, and that's how I always pictured him. He's just definitely a little bit closer to Dumbledore here, but... I like his personality. I think that fits well. Mm, sure. I would agree with that. I will admit that, like, after a movie of not being there, going back to Hogwarts with the swelling music worked really well. From like that, that got me. Mm-hmm. It it feel it felt like coming back home. It was good. Yeah. When they when everyone sees Harry and just like starts, it just made me happy. It just, but why is Luna there? Like, I guess Luna could have gone back to Hogwarts before Harry and them. She escaped with them and then the Gringotts heist, but she didn't go with them on the Gringotts heist. So maybe she went to send word about what was going on to Neville at Hogwarts. That makes sense to me. I could potentially see that. Because like, she was kidnapped from school by the Death Eaters, but then she was saved by them and she was with Bill and Fleur. And so I was just like, they know Hogwarts is super dangerous. Why would they send her back to school? It does make more sense to me if I think of it as Luna wanting to be there, mm-hmm. you know? To help her friends, because that's very Luna. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I could also, I feel like that definitely could have gotten a little more explanation, but also it might be like a thing where there are two lines in the script or whatever where that was going to be a thing and they like, they cut it for time or, what, or something because they figured no one would really ask. And I mean, I didn't really think about it until someone brought it up. So, yeah. Okay. So we've got two battles of Hogwarts. Yep. 
what moments do we want to talk about from those? Because I think those are probably going to be like the quick hits and then uh, we'll get into more of the deeper stuff. God, wow, there's a lot for me that... I really like how the protection spells around Hogwarts, they look kind of like neurons. Oh, yeah, That's it. a really neat touch. It's really pretty. The scene of all of them putting up the wards was very effective for me. We were watching it and we were kind of, we'd been like joking around and kind of making fun of certain parts. And I had just been yelling mm-hmm. because I get really angry about the Slytherins getting kicked out because one Slytherin yeah. was kind of an asshole. They were, and then they were like, okay, we're just going to assume none of you would want to fight for this place that is also your home because you've been here and your children and I'm just going to assume you're all evil. Bye. Uh, but whatever. Oh. <laughs> but we had been talking about that. I mean, literally none of them like spoke up, uh, yeah, so I don't really care. It. No one agreed with her. They all could have said, yeah, Pansy, you're right. Let's rush him. And no one did. They didn't also get any time. Like, they did, there was, like, a moment where they were all, they just had Voldemort in their head. They're probably freaking out thinking, I'm here with my friends, and I like that, but my parents are probably out there, and I'm scared. I'm 12. <laughs> yeah. And then some shitty seventh year that they may not even know that well says, yeah, get him. So the fact that they didn't agree with her, like they no one agreed with her no one stepped up with her no one supported her at all i think that's still better than like something i'm not going to hold it against them for not immediately punching her in the face because they've got to be scared out of their minds i feel very bad for them there's some of them that are going to be shitty but i think the idea that they didn't give any of them a chance to fight for hogwarts is one of the things that most goes against the entire message of Harry Potter. It just completely ruins it for me because it's... It it does in the fact that, you know, everything that you said, but it doesn't in the fact that all Slytherins are evil and that's how JK has always written them. And I don't see the... Like, I'm not mad at the movie for not doing anything about it. I'm mad at JK for writing it that I mean, way in the first yes, place. Yeah, see, I'm mad at the movie. I'm not mad at, like, McGonagall for doing it, because that's another one of those things where I'm like, JK yeah. Rowling did this. It's just that it's like, she definitely shows these moments of trying, because, like, Slughorn's a Slytherin. He gets to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, Peter Pettigrew's a yeah. Gryffindor. He gets to be the one of the worst henchmen of the Dark Lord. And J.K. Rowling right. herself has, like, talked about how, oh, yeah, Slytherin, some of them are misunderstood. Not all of them are evil. There's good in Slytherin house. But then the entire, all the movies, all the books go 100% against that. And it just makes me so mad that it's supposed to be this big triumphant moment for them to, to kick them all out and act like they wouldn't want to defend their home while everyone else gets to. And it's supposed to be this whole, yeah, fuck Slytherin. It's like they're children who, what did they, what did these actual individual children do wrong? Because like not every Slytherin is a Death Eater. There's not enough Death Eaters for every Slytherin of the last like 20 years to be a Death Eater. It's just, mm. ugh. That, I was very angry about that. But my point is that I was very angry, but still when the words started going up, I still got chills. I was still like, this is beautiful. I'm still very mad, (laughs) but this is beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. I think like the the thing where McGonagall like animates all the statues is really cool. It's a little weird because I feel like physical impediments are not like a big thing for them. It seems like not like a very high CR antagonist, but I like it. It was cool. It was fun to watch. That's how I felt. I was like, I have a lot of questions about this. I don't know how useful this is in the open air when Death Eaters can fly, I guess. And we were wondering why that had never been used a little 
sooner in some cases, but I can go with it. It's like a major, major serious emergency spell. You know, I can go with it. I like, don't think it makes a lot of sense, but I do think it's really fun to watch, and I love McGonagall being really excited to use it. I don't know. I think it's more so that someone was always ahead of McGonagall in the pecking order of like leadership at Hogwarts, and now there's no one above her. It's like, yes, we get to do things my way. <laughs> <laughs> that actually would make sense. I could see Dumbledore not using that spell unless it was like super, super duper necessary, whereas McGonagall would be like, oh, fuck yes, finally. I love these statues. <laughs> I'm into that. As to why it hasn't been used before, I could see it being a thing where, like, the spell's been, like, set up for a while, and McGonagall's just kind of, like, activating it, and, like, it would take a while to, like, reset it later. So, yeah. I, I, it's like a, like a one-time use thing. Yeah, you also have to, like, go and find all of the destroyed statues and, like, bring them back and then repair them. Okay, okay. So, this bugs me so much. They have a bunch of trolls i think during this fight giants whatever yeah the giants they're all swinging around like large blunt objects and everyone's like wow we've never dealt with a large creature swinging a blunt object before how do we solve this incredibly difficult to solve problem none of us know what to do here and it's it's so frustrating that they've all forgotten that part from the first movie well i mean it was only harry rod and hermione yeah, there's some ones who are like, ooh, what a big problem, can't solve this, gonna hide behind a wall now. I thought that would come up during the, like, during the DA of like, hey, here's how you solve this problem. <laughs> the defense against the dark arts spell of club is make a club gone. Yeah, and it's also like, they solved that when they were 11. Are you telling me none of these adults have ever heard or read or learned anything about defense strategies? against trolls creature that is just in the wizarding world somewhere i think it could be a really good like contrast if like all the adults are using like just standard like stupefy impedimenta whatever and all the kids are using like really creative like minor hexes they don't know the big stuff and they're like solving the problems through cleverness that could be a really fun visual thing to have to bring more characterization to the spite scene lot of questions about how cleaning works in the wizarding world i i don't want to know anything more about jk's cleaning okay not that part (laughs) no but like okay so i mean yeah hogwarts got super fucked up and i was thinking about it when you were talking about the statues now they'd need to find all the pieces and bring them back together which is true but also like in book six they destroy that whole house and then just kind of Dumbledore just waves his wand it takes care of itself 100 percent. it just does it and it's like I mean, to be fair, Dumbledore has the Elder Wand. And is Dumbledore. That's true. Yeah. Uh, Harry had the Elder Wand for two seconds. He could have fixed Hogwarts. Could have fixed a lot of things. Yeah, but Harry's wand is only useful for, like, blasty spells and Patronus. He knows Expelliarmus. Harry knows three spells. (laughs) Expelliarmus, Expecto Patronum. (laughs) Stupefy. Lumos. Harry is a Pokemon. (laughs) He, He did... He did learn Imperio in this one. Yep. I hate how they visualize it, though. Yep, it's fine. It's fine. That's sniffing. Why do they sniff like that? Bad. Yep. Yeah. Anyway, um, Battle of Hogwarts, though. So, you know, we get the scene with, like, we're going through all the dead and whatnot. Fred's death is very awful and sad and heart-wrenching. But we have Lupin and Tonks there, and then they mention their son, Teddy, who they have not established before, and I figured they would just not because it's not important at all. But not no, how we... they do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Like, I mean, they're not important in this either, because basically what happens is Harry looks over, they're there, he kind of frowns real big, and then we never <laughs> hear about them again. Except Remus is there when he's looking at the ghosts. Remus is kind of there like, I am here too. Yep. Yep. That's it. That's all that matters. Okay, they alluded incredibly eluded, like so much that it's not even an illusion. Very subtle that Tonks was pregnant in the last one, yes. Yeah, and that's about, because we were actually trying to do the math on that. Because <laughs> we were really confused about if Teddy would have even been born. What is the length of a wizard pregnancy? And like, and because like, I think the Battle of Hogwarts is supposed to also take place around finals times the way the finales always yep. do. Mm-hmm. Once again, Harry Potter has fucked up everybody's final exams. <laughs> a, tr- a true hero of our times. <laughs> but it didn't feel like that much time had passed between seeing her at the burrow and then it did not feel like seven eight months she wasn't even showing it didn't feel like seven eight months had passed also he wasn't a newborn he was supposed to be like a few months old i have a concept it's a little weird okay is it that wizard pregnancy is super fast no it's they like intentionally sped up the pregnancy like you're like magical aging thing to the like i only took four months because being pregnant in a war is stressful and bad and having a baby is slightly less bad maybe that's... I mean, I think in the books, it's just normal, and the baby's just actually there. They get to meet the baby and hang out with the baby. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He matters a little more. And that makes that makes Remus and Tonks' deaths even, like, sadder. Yes. Because yeah. they have a baby. Who then Harry, and Harry is his godfather, and that's really nice. Yeah. A really nice kind of circular thing. Mm-hmm. Grown-up Teddy is the only thing I like, apart, I like about the epilogue. I like that Neville is a professor. Yeah. Oh, I do like that. I might also be like mixing it with uh, that one bit in Once Upon a Time where Rumpelstiltskin wants to steal a baby, but the baby isn't born yet, so he just like makes it go really fast, <laughs> and it's horrifying. Uh... Bad. Anyway, um, I will just say that it's weird to me that the ghosts look different in this one. Weird to me they brought the ghosts. Yeah. They keep changing how the ghosts look. It's, yeah. Uh, do you want to get into the, into the dark hug here or later? The dark hug? The dark hug. <laughs> Where Voldemort hugs Malfoy is the most amazing scene ever. No, when Voldemort first was walking up, like, the bridge and everything, I started kind of laughing. I turned to Ian and I was like, I just remembered the best thing. And he said the hug. Because <laughs> we were both immediately thinking about it. Because it's so good. Uh, oh, we could talk about the hug, but I also really love... Uh, Harry's like wild card bitches moment <laughs> where he just kind of rolls out to the ground like I'm alive <laughs> I'm immortal <laughs> exactly also during that scene Voldemort is like I have killed Harry Potter who wants to join my team and Neville's like I have an inspiring speech and Voldemort has this like like frustrated <laughs> like goddamn god damn Gryffindors <laughs> Oh my god, I loved his reaction during that. Voldemort is so good in this movie. Like, he just really is. Ray finds doing such a good job. Mm-hmm. I love him in the forest when he thinks Harry isn't going to show up. He looks so sad. <laughs> he looks like he looks like he's been stood up on a date. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he's just like, I really thought he would come. <laughs> and it's, or like, and also like how he looked kind of genuinely sad to kill Snape. He just does such a good job as Voldemort. He's so good. Yeah, I really like that change. Like, all the previous film Voldemort has felt like this huge figure that is 
beyond our conception of like humanity mm-hmm. and this one like really brings him down to earth and just shows how small and sad and pitiful he is and i think that's one thing that works yeah he's a bit of a goober honestly like yeah. he's he's a big nerd <laughs> and also like a horrible I mean, like tyrant. all fascists are yeah <laughs> i think it works and makes him more of a character which is good i agree mm-hmm and I do like that they like mentioned that like now they've started destroying Horcruxes, he's getting more unstable, which allows him to have a slight characterization change. It's, mm-hmm. it's a good way to blend that all. Yeah, I think there's two big things that we need to talk about. We need to talk about Snape. We talk, need to talk about Malfoy. Yep. Any any other big things that I'm missing? I mean, I do just want to say that I love that they preserve the dialogue almost word for word in the limbo scene. This is a good scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Snape, I hate him. <laughs> I thought he yeah. did a lot more before he died. I was under the impression that he actually did something. Before he died, but he mostly just dies, huh? <laughs> yeah, he died as he lived, wasting my time. Yeah, I remember like reading the books and feeling okay. I understand Snape, and this is a little bit of a redemption arc for him. But watching how the movie does it, I'm not sure if it's like how the movie does it or whether I'm an adult now. It's just no Snape pining after Lily for so many years is super fucking creepy. It doesn't help anything at all. He is. So awful. I feel more angry about Snape because you showed me all of this. (laughs) To me, it's like, if he had just been pining, that would have been fine to me. If he had just been like, yeah, I loved her, and this all really sucks. Especially because, like, if someone dies young like that, it's a lot harder to let go of them. Yeah. That on its own would have been fine for me. It's the fact that he both loved her and tortured her son for seven (laughs) years. (laughs) <laughs> they don't go together very well. I mean, they do, and that Snape is a terrible person. But yeah. it's the sort of thing where it's like, if he had just been like in love with her, and that had been like a lot of his motivation, then that wouldn't have been creepy to me. It just would have been sad. Not like mm-hmm. sweet either. Like it wouldn't be sweet. It would just be like that sucks. That's kind of sad and tragic, I guess. I would have understood his feelings more. But the fact that he did that, and then also was like absolutely horrible to Harry at any point that he could be. It's just because he had his father's hair. <laughs> yep. And was a boy. God, if Harry had been a girl, I don't even want to think oh, about Oh, God, that. I don't oh, even no. want to think about that. No, nope. We're not going to talk about it, because it would be very bad. That makes it bad to me. That ma- All I can think about, then, is how incredibly selfish he is. Yeah. Whereas, like, if he had, been, if he had taken care of Harry, or just been kind of, like benign neglect towards Harry, even if he had just avoided him and not wanted to be around him because he reminds him of so many painful memories. Mm-hmm. But if he had just been not abusive towards Harry and yeah. pining for Lily, it's like, this just would have been sad. But- yeah, honestly, having Snape just be indifferent. Like, I don't care who you are. You're like, so what if you're famous? I don't give a shit. I don't want anything to do with you. That could have been interesting. Absolutely. Or having Snape be like, actively trying to keep Harry from being like his father and that he's like his dad was a bully but doing a bad job of like keeping him off of that path because he doesn't really know what he's doing because he's never like really tried to like raise a child that could have been like fun and interesting but yeah so I will get into Malfoy yeah go ahead and you and Jackson can have your Draco Malfoy discussion I don't really have any input (laughs) the movies do so badly by him I think the movies should have spent more time on him, but I think Half-Blood Prince especially actually does very well for Malfoy. The story, even though it needs more of him, so much of Half-Blood Prince is about Draco. And maybe it's because Tom Felton just plays Draco very, very well. To me, so much of Half-Blood Prince is like watching Draco struggle 
with the expectations of his family and kind of like seeing the reality of what being a Death Eater's kid actually is and what being a Death Eater actually is. Because he didn't really know. He just knew he was raised by Death Eaters and they had told him it was good. And he was a kid, so like he believes his parents. And then he actually sees what it is. And now, I hate this. I don't want to be here, but I can't disappoint my family. It's not like I have anywhere else to turn because he doesn't believe Dumbledore would help him. Which again is the thing with Slytherins, they have no reason to believe that anyone else would ever help them, that anyone else would ever care about them. That, you know, the address of the school hates them. And that's just confirmed. <laughs> and I, I love watching him solve the puzzle of the vanishing cabinet because you see his distress all year. You see him get worse and worse and worse and more and more upset because he doesn't want to be doing this, but he has to do this, he has to save his family. And you also see Lucius getting worse. You see Lucius and um, Narcissa getting worse. I mean, Lucius, by the end of it, the way Ian described him is that he looks like the guy who's trying to hide his zombie bite. <laughs> yes! That's <laughs> yes. true. But, I mean, it fails him in that it doesn't give him the true redemption arc that he deserves. Yeah. But give, we get at least a really good taste of it. We see more of him in this than we do in the book. Because the book is from Harry's perspective, you know. So, But we get to see kind of more of him. And we get to see Tom Felton just doing an amazing job bringing Draco's emotions to, to the screen. I agree in movie six. But, like, in movie seven and seven two, it doesn't play out as well as it could have. Like, oh, yeah. he's just, he's so impotent. He has all these chances to make a change and he fucking doesn't. Mm -hmm. All of his changes, like, he just doesn't act. He doesn't do anything actively. He just passively offers resistance and he keeps giving more opportunities to do more and he never does. Mm -hmm. I think also part of the reason why I really just hate Draco is he becomes so insignificant early on. Harry outgrows him as an antagonist by the second film and he's moved on to his dad. Mm-hmm. And Draco never levels up. He never is on Harry's level. He's always so insignificant to whatever's going on in Harry's life. At least as the film presents it. Yes. Yeah. Harry obsesses over him every single book, especially Half-Blood Prince. Like, maybe he's technically insignificant, but not to Harry. Harry is constantly noticing what Malfoy is doing. Like, he may not be significant to the plot, but he's significant to Harry in a big, big way. Um... Like, as the film present things. I mean, yeah, I think in Half-Blood Prince they see it more again, because Half-Blood Prince is almost entirely yeah. about it. But, like, I mean, I agree that I'm, like, more and more kind of having an issue with, like, condemning characters who are scared but don't do anything bad, technically. Like, it's the sort of thing where it's, like, you could have done more, mm -hmm. but you're also 17. I know Harry's 17, too, but there are extraordinary people here. And sometimes it's... I, I feel bad being like, oh, you suck because you're not extraordinary. Because some people aren't. And the fact that he did help in the small ways that he could, we see that we've seen that since the first like the first movie. Draco's a coward, he just is. <laughs> yeah. I think being an adult has made me see Harry Potter and all the characters so much differently because of that. Because I think I remember they're literal children. And so it is easy for me to say condemn Lucius because he's a whole ass adult who even mm. when Harry was captured and they were in Malfoy Manor, he was like smirking at Harry as he went to like call Voldemort. So Lucius is still bad. Why is yeah. Lucius in Azkaban? We were looking this up because we were like, why didn't Lucius and Narcissa or at least Lucius go to Azkaban? Because they don't. They're just kind of like, oh yeah, they changed sides after Voldemort died. And it's like, that's just called losing. 
struggling i'm really sympathetic to that i don't think he's like a hero or anything i do think he deserved a redemption arc and i think he deserves to be more important but does the best with the tools that he has and i can't blame him for not being as like extraordinarily ridiculously brave as harry potter ultimate gryffindor (laughs) i mean he's not even as brave as like colin creevy's little brother hmm yeah, sure, Harry's extraordinary. I don't expect anyone to... Harry also doesn't really have a choice. Like, he's involved in this, even if he doesn't want to be. So it's be extraordinary or die. But there's so many other kids around Harry that could just not. And they don't. That's true. I think for me, it's, it's a little bit less his actions in the films. It's more like... I feel like after the whole thing with with Six, where they do a good job with his character and with Malcolm Dumbledore, we don't really get like a, a one-on-one conversation with him about like where he's at, how he's feeling. I think that like mm-hmm. his characterization is underserved more than like his character's actions are underserved. I mm-hmm. would agree with that. I also think that I mean, the thing is, I I do I do still feel like Draco kind of does a couple of things that don't seem extraordinary compared to everyone else, but given his situation, which again. The movies maybe don't do justice by this. Just the fact that he was lowering his wand and wasn't going to kill Dumbledore, going against Voldemort's direct orders, knowing Voldemort would kill him and his family if he did this, not knowing Snape was going to save the day. The fact that he was literally just lowering his wand and wasn't going to kill Dumbledore was pretty huge, actually. It doesn't look big. It's not as impressive as what other people do. Like, he doesn't cut off a snake head, but which is great. Still great. Great every time. Yep. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, it was great until we have more context for Nagini. Okay, yeah. But I, that, doesn't, that doesn't exist. <laughs> that didn't happen. <laughs> it's just that small act in his circumstances is so big. And I just see all these little things add up. I, I like Draco Malfoy. I just, I... Like, it's, it's fine. You're allowed to like Draco Malfoy. I just don't and never will, and that's also no, okay. No, neither does my boyfriend. Neither does Ian. Ian fucking hates him. We fight about it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> we have to turn to talking about Snape because we both hate Snape. Okay, so, things we do not know in this movie. That James Potter turns into a stag. That his Patronus will be a stag. That's the whole thing. Things we know. Lily's Patronus was a, was a doe. Snape's Patronus was a doe. Harry's Patronus is a stag. Because we don't know about the James Potter thing, the implication that the movies give us, the way that we end that one limbo scene and talking about how Harry's Patronus is a doe, is that Snape is his dad. That's the impression that I'm getting from this movie. And honestly, I can't disagree with your argument at all because of the huge plot hole that the movies forgot to fill in and everything else that leads us there. All of the evidence is definitely in favor of, yeah, Snape is Harry's illegitimate father. I have almost certainly read that fanfiction, too. (laughs) I've read Uh, every fanfiction. Like, it's definitely not canon in the books, but in the movies, I can definitely see it being a thing. It's not not canon in the movies, (laughs) is what I'm saying. Good point. I accept, well, I don't accept it, but I do accept it a little bit. I'll accept anything if you argue it well enough. And that was a good argument. Thank you. That's my tinfoil hat for this movie. Before we go, let's get into who is the most prep, most nerd, most jock, and most goth of the characters in these movies. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, I think goth, we have to go with Draco. Yes. Oh, yeah. Our emo prince. 
Draco has moved from prep to goth. A sudden shift. So, let's see. Nerd, I think we have to keep it Hermione. Hermione from Wizard, yeah. Obviously. Okay, yeah, obviously. I think Ron's kind of jock, but all Gryffindors are, mostly. I think for this for this set of films, Ron definitely becomes most jock. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's another. There's a better person to put in there as far as students. But who is most prep of the students now? I think Blaze is a good uh, most prep. I think he kind of replaces Draco. Like, I don't know who else would I would put there as far as students for prep. Because, mm. it, like, it pretty much has to be a Slytherin. I mean, dies, but you could potentially say Lavender. She's in, like, one movie, though, so... Oh, her, that's, you know, you're not well, wrong. She goes so you're not hard wrong. in that one movie. Yeah, <laughs> no, I'll, more than Blaze. She's more of a character than Blaze, but at then, least. And then she gets a death Lavender scene, Brown? Yeah. It's just kind of like, ah, shit. She dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'll take it. Cool. Yeah, and that's all I've got for this. Uh, except for um, uh, Dumbledore's questionable decisions being, again, another one for his, like, please kill me, this is a good plan. And also, him fostering Snape's weird thing. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, like he he specifically like makes sure that it never gets resolved, so he could keep using it against Snape to get Snape to do what he wants. It's very bad. Actually, reminds me of like the one moment where I almost liked Snape is when Dumbledore tells him about Harry needing to die, and Snape is like actually kind of horrified that Dumbledore is raising Harry to die. Yeah, that surprised me. Like just because it seems like something Snape would kind of go. Great. Get that kid out of my life. I love the boldness in these movies of like still saying you have your mother's eyes and then just making the Lily's eyes brown and Harry's blue. <laughs> I just love that they just they just go for it. They don't even they don't even try. They're just like, yeah, look, Messy. it's her eyes. It doesn't matter. <laughs> don't question it. <laughs> I think it's so funny. Mm-hmm. Uh. the one thing it like you were here when we did the twilight episode we kind of talked about yes. how the final film feeling like this ending to this cultural phenomenon and i don't quite get that as much with harry potter surprisingly even though harry potter is like undoubtedly a bigger thing than twilight i don't get it on rewatch i got it when i saw it at the midnight showing i cried all the way home mm-hmm. um but on rewatch, it doesn't feel quite the same. I think Twilight gets it, it mostly because they do the credits of the entire <laughs> series. And I did cry. Uh, whereas during <laughs> Harry Potter, when we get towards the end of, of Deathly Hollows Part 2, all I can think is, I don't want to watch the epilogue. <laughs> That's all I can think. <laughs> so I know like you're strapped for time, but like, what exactly are your problems with the epilogue besides Harry's terrible names for his children? That is honestly like the primary issue <laughs> okay like i just don't think it's necessary i think it's like absolutely the least necessary epilogue that has ever existed it didn't need to be there the ending before was before it was fine i can't stop thinking about sweet neville longbottom killer of a horcrux being like cool harry i like that name thanks for naming <laughs> that after the worst abuser i ever had in my entire life we're good friends, huh, Harry? <laughs> <laughs> also, Lily Luna? For one thing, everyone else he names his kid after, kids after are dead. Um, I also just feel like 
Luna doesn't quite fit the theme of his kids' names. No. So it's just kind of like, why? Why not, like, any of... There are other women in your life, Harry. <laughs> to be fair, Lily Nymphadora, w- much worse, but... No, abs- that's, yeah, that's the thing. It's like, there's not a lot of other women who die. Lily but, Bellatrix. Like... <laughs> or, like, I mean, Lily Luna sounds dumb anyway, so why not, like, Lily Molly also sounds pretty <laughs> dumb. But it's, it all... They, he can just get out with Severus. He can like, Molly's not her, like... Legal name. I think it's Margaret. Lily Margaret would be great. That is really that's good. Actually, Holy shit. That's a beautiful name. Yeah. Oh, and they, so they have, like both of his moms. That's really good. I don't know. I don't know. I can't think of any other girls in the Harry Potter series right now other than Hermione. And I think that'd be weird. Yeah. Also, Lily literally, Cho. like, Dumbledore has, like, five first names. Pick a better one than Albus. Brian. Wolfric. Brian, seriously. I just... I know. Brian I, Severus per, Potter. Percival. Percival. Like, there are so Percival. many better options. Percival's really good. Percival it's Potter. Just, it's just mm, one of those no. cases mm. where, where fan service doesn't work. She mm-hmm. was trying to do fan service by being like, look, you know these people. The way fantasy sometimes does with, like, naming yeah. kids after other characters. Except in this case, it kind of was just like, huh? Yeah. Like... Okay, so it's literally just the terrible, terrible names. Okay, that's fine. Everything else I'm kind of neutral on. It's just kind of like, whatever. Yeah, that's yeah, kind of how I feel adults. about it. They're, they're adults. They, it's, I guess I kind of like symmetry of like them sending their kids off to Hogwarts, so I think it's really heavy-handed. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like the last line of the epilogue being about how his scar hadn't hurt him in however many years. That mm-hmm. is really good. I like that, but the rest of it, I'm just kind of like, why? It just it completely like dampens the ending for me. It does not have the same emotional payoff as like Voldemort dying. Yeah, yeah. or like the or like them on the bridge of Hogwarts with Hogwarts in ruins behind them, but they're okay and the sun is shining is like better. Do you want to do a quick plug for your, for anything or? Uh, just my usual sarahhollowell.com is where you can learn everything about me, including my book coming out fall 2021, which is called A Dark and Starless Forest and is a YA contemporary fantasy. I hope we are around and it gets published and we everyone reads it. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> All, right. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here. Uh, it was great having you. Thank you for having me back. I enjoy getting to yell about things <laughs> on this here podcast. Hopefully you come back for Titanic. Oh my god. If you did Titanic <laughs> without me, I would hunt you down. <laughs> Our next bracket is movies on boats. So, so yeah, we're, we're probably uh, doing need... Titanic multiple times. Okay. All right. Thank you for All being right. here. Bye. Thank you. Farewell. Farewell. Bye. And farewell to you. This is the end of our prep school bracket. We're finally graduating. Yep. We're going to probably take a couple weeks off just to relax for a little bit. Pandemics are hard. Pandemics are hard. Some of us are moving. Some of us are working comical extra hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll probably be back in a couple weeks. If you want to be sure to know when we are back, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, wherever you catch your pods. This has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.